0: Okay, man, they're kind of there. It's good to see you guys. It's great to be back. My family and I had a chance to get away last week and go spend a few days in Arkansas and visit family and have 4th of July family reunion and all that kind of fun stuff. So it's great to get great to go, but it's always great to come home. I wasn't here in the room with you, but I was watching online. It's great when I'm not here that I can still be a part of what's uh, going on here. Tell you, Amy did a terrific job last week if you were here on a very difficult but very relevant topic. In fact, if you weren't here and you missed it, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to it. Go to the website, go to our podcast and, and find it. Because what she talked about was people's desire for the spiritual how people hunger, they long for these spiritual experiences, even if it means chasing after substitute or artificial spirituality. You know, she talked about tarot cards and astrology, horoscopes and all these things because uh, that's what we desire. We're looking for something. And I will tell you, I think part of the problem is that the church has done a really good job of taking the spiritual out we've so mentalized everything that we completely took out the transcendent expressions and the spirituality and those things and so i get why people would be hungry and looking for that but we know when we really get back to what jesus did and what the early church did is that there is a real thing there's a real spirituality that is pursuing us and inviting us to experience the presence of God. And we use this word a lot now, transcendence, to transcendent presence of God. The God who spoke it all into existence, who holds it all in order with his word is also the same God that is pursuing us, that desires us, that wants this creation with us. You know, and so Amy talked about last week, you know, how we fear the future, so we ask somebody to tell us what's going to happen, or we want to control things more, so we ask somebody to read the stars and, and tell us how we might need to do things. But whatever it is, when you think about this desire for the spiritual, really what it comes down to, what drives a lot of this, is our view of God. How we see God, how we know God, how we understand God. Who is He? And how does he interact with us? How does he interact with his creation? And so really, that's kind of what I want to launch into a little bit this morning is is to think about God. Now, we're in a series called In Plain Sight. And what we're doing is we're just trying to see, looking at the world around us. How does God, how is God in those things? How do we see God revealing himself to us through movies and TV shows and podcasts and nature and spirituality and all these things Because what we're finding, I hope, is that God does reveal himself. That the reason we can know anything about God is because God chose to reveal himself to us. And if we look, we can even find God in the places we might least expect to see him. So I will tell you, I would love, though, to be able to sit up here on a Sunday and impress you all with just what a deep thinker I am. And how I watch every movie and every TV show and listen to every podcast. And in all these things, I'm I'm so deep that I find theological significance in everything. I don't. It's just not true. In fact, you may be like me, that when I watch movies for the most time, I'm the guy that kind of watches for entertainment only. It's like I'm not even thinking deeply about it at all. I'm just kind of there. And really, five minutes after I've watched it, you could come up to me and you could say, oh, tell me about that movie. And I'd go, it was really good. Well, tell me about it. Well, there was a guy. Think there was a woman. They went somewhere. You know, that's anybody like that? Anybody watch with that? Okay, good. I'm not alone in this, you know. But there are people who do find deeper significance in movies and shows and things. In fact, you could remember everything about them. Anybody like that? Oh, there you are. You know, those those are the annoying people, right? At least to me. Because they watch a movie and then they can start quoting movie lines like immediately after watching it. And I'm like, I... Couldn't even tell you anything about it. Sounds familiar. Okay, sounds good. So, but there was one movie recent, not recently, within the last few years, and I watched it. And as I as I watched it, like I said, I don't usually have the spiritual eye towards it. But it got to the end of the movie, and I just kind of sat there and I went, "Wait a minute. That's the gospel. That's the gospel." I mean, I thought about the, the, the plot and how it unfo- unfolded and all this, and I was just like, holy cow, this is amazing. And I realized, me even saying the word gospel, that's not, that's a church word, right? We don't go around every day going, I've got the gospel, the go-, you know. So we need to maybe explain what we mean by that. But the word gospel is from a Greek word that we have in the New Testament. It's called euangelion, And it simply means this it means good news. That's all it means, it means good news. But even by saying it's good news, anybody got any questions about that? Anybody like, well, what is the good news? Who gets to decide what the good news is and good news about what? I mean, that's where we should go. Those are legitimate questions that we should ask. And it's as complicated sometimes as I think we try to make it. And often, where I think especially the church in America likes to twist it and make it look more like bad news than good news, We can come to an understanding of what good news is supposed to be. And really, it's just simply this. It's Jesus. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus. No matter what else we may try to tack on top of it, no matter how bad we might try to make Jesus look or sound, and we do sometimes, it's just Jesus. In fact, if you look at the Apostle Paul's writings, he really spells it out for us pretty simply In the letter that he wrote, you know, he helped start this church in Corinth and he's writing them letters and he writes this letter because they're having lots of problems. And in 1 Corinthians in our Bible, listen to what Paul writes. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. There's that word right there. The gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. He says, all right, this is what I came. This is what I preached. This is what you believed. This is the foundation of your faith right here. And he continues. He says, "By this gospel, there it is again. You are saved, rescued, redeemed. We'll get to that. If you hold firmly to the word I preached you, otherwise you've believed in vain." So what's going on here? There's others coming in, and they're doing what we like to do. They like to come in and they say, "Well, yeah, there's Jesus, but there's Jesus and you need to, you know, you need to attend church fifty times a year." And you know, really, if you it's Jesus and give ten percent of your income because if you don't, can you really say you're following? And so you see how it works. We just start tacking these things on. We just add them up. And and Paul is saying, don't do that. Remember what I told you, the gospel that I preached to you. And there he's going to tell them what it was. He says, for what I received, he says, I got this from Jesus himself. What I got, I passed on to you of first importance. This isn't the 13th most important thing. This isn't the seventh most important thing. This is number one, number one right here. What is it? That Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to scriptures. And after that, he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, many of you were here. Or you know somebody that was here. They're still alive. There's these people around us that saw Jesus, that were there. They saw an experience and they heard the miracles. They interacted with him. And they saw him crucified. They saw him killed. They saw him dead. But then they saw him risen from the dead. They had these post-resurrection experiences with Jesus. They can attest to what has happened. he says, and then he appeared to James and then the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me in that vision on the road to Damascus as to one abnormally born. And then he says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. What was the gospel? What was the gospel? Pretty simple, right? No matter how complicated we try to make it, it's pretty simple. It is Jesus, died for our sins, buried and raised. So simple, yet so significant. And now, You may remember a couple minutes ago, I said there was a movie that I watched that brought this all flooding back in, this beautiful picture of what the gospel is. What is that? Let's take a look. Now, first, before I get there, any sci-fi fans out there? No? No sci-fi? Okay, I see a couple. I am a sci-fi fan. I don't watch all things sci-fi. So stay with me if you're not a sci-fi fan. Okay. Usually when you ask about sci-fi fans, it becomes a fight between Star Wars people, those nerdy guys and Star Trek people, the much cooler, you know, better people. But you know, that's just how I see it. Um, but this film a sci-fi movie. It was released in 2016 and it was nominated for best picture of the year. It's called Arrival. Anybody seen Arrival? Okay. You've seen this one. I loved it. Incredible movie. So let me give you the synopsis. Here's the Brent's Notes version of this movie. Begins with the arrival of 12 alien spacecraft. Now, I realize some of you are already going, oh, good grief. Stick with me. Please stick with me because it's really cool. It's really great. 12 alien spacecraft come and they hover over 12 different places around the world. And of course, as you can imagine, if that were to really happen, the world goes nuts. There's chaos and the world is trying to figure out do these aliens come meaning us harm, or do they come in peace? And then we meet the actress there in the top of the movie poster, Dr. Louise Banks. And she is a linguist, and she's, the military has come to her, and they said, we want you to help us figure out how to talk to the aliens. Um, how can we do this? And so what we learn about Louise is that as she, we, it's kind of the story through her eyes. And then we see what we look what appears to be flashbacks with her and she's interacting with her daughter, and she's you know, having a birthday party with her daughter and reading with her daughter and putting her daughter to bed. It's this beautiful relationship, and then of course, as kids get older, it's not always roses and buttercups, so there's some conflict with the daughter. But then you kinda, as this is going on, and these are just glimpses throughout, you see that her daughter gets sick at the age of 12, and her daughter dies from an incurable illness. And then we're kinda moving back and forth in time, And then we move back and, you know, we see the world. We're teetering on the edge of global war. Everybody's racing against time to figure out what's going on with these aliens. And eventually, Dr. Louise here figures out how to communicate with them. And they communicate in a language called logograms that look like this right there. And that is a word in the movie that means before and after, or it means time. And this is how these aliens interact and she and her partner Ewan figure out how to become more fluent at this language but as they do there's a moment where they re- they think they've realized that the aliens are offering them what they translate as a weapon now think about that aliens come offering a weapon then it's whoever can get to it first right so the world just go nuts over this as well but what they realize eventually they're not offering a bomb what they're offering them is their language and this language can change how they see time. And as she understands, Dr. Louise understands it more and more, time becomes very non-linear for her. She's able to figure out how to diffuse this global situation and keep the world from imploding by remembering things from the future even now. And she uses that to help bring peace to the world. And in the end, we discover that what we have thought all along have been these flashbacks, these glimpses of her with her daughter, weren't flashbacks at all, but they were actually scenes from the future. And in the future, she's able to see that she gets together with the other doctor, Ian, and then they have this daughter and they have the joys of raising a child. They have the, you know, the challenges of divorce, and then they suffer the incredible loss of their daughter. And she's left with a question. Take a look. This is the final scene from the movie. is where your story begins the day they departed you're all right despite knowing the journey lines in that clip right there that are incredible to me. The first one is, if you she asks, if you could see your whole life from start to finish, would you th- change things? What a question. I mean, think about her in that moment in the movie, she, she knows what's coming, she sees the future, knowing the outcome awaiting her, yes, the joys of childbirth and raising a child and experiencing a child's love, but also the unbearable pain of losing that child. And she has a choice to make. Embrace the future joy, which also means embracing the future pain or just walking away from it all. And I love that line. It was early in that clip where she says, despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it. What a powerful, powerful thing. And as, I, as the credits rolled on that movie, I sat there completely taken with knowing that this wasn't some 21st century screenwriter's words or science fiction movie. That this is God's story. This is how God sees creation. And it's not just a story about, well, would you make different choices and all that. Really, it's, a, it's, it's about the choices that God has already made. The choice that he made, the things he's already done. This is an example of the gospel. I mean, when we look at the Bible and you start at the very beginning, the book of Genesis, you don't get very far before you begin to see and understand just how off the rails this thing was going to go right from the beginning. I mean, what, page two of Genesis? I mean, we already see it. We see humanity and their boldness, their audacity, their rejection, imperfection. That's what we did, that's what humanity did. We weren't content to reign with God even though he told us we could reign with him forever. We wanted it for ourselves. We wanted to push him out, so we gave in to the temptation. We took the fruit and we rejected God's plan. And we didn't just reject God's plan, we rejected even God himself. We pushed him out. And as I thought about that, I thought, imagine the heartache for God. I mean, we don't have to really imagine it very far because you go a few more pages over in the book of Genesis. You get to Genesis chapter 6. And in the, just very early in the story, look at what it says. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. That's a sad verse, isn't it? That is a terrible verse. And that, that, what's translated there, deeply troubled, is also translated in other places, grieved distressed, to be in pain, to be hurt. And yet, even with this moment, even with all the, and you continue through the Old Testament, you continue to see the rejection and the awful things and the outright evil things that humanity has done. Even with all the sin, the rejection, the heartache, and the pain, we find that God knew this would be the way. He knew that we would turn away from him. He knew that we would be selfish, that we would be power hungry, that we would be arrogant and proud and sometimes downright evil. And despite knowing the journey and where it leads, God embraced it. Isn't that amazing? Now you may think, well, how do you know this? How do I know God wasn't just surprised by the things that happened and when humanity jumped off the rails, he didn't go, wait, what's going on? Well, there's several places. In fact, if you look at what the early church leaders and and the New Testament writers wrote, we understand like Peter in the letter that he wrote, 1 Peter in our Bibles, look at what he writes. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the way of li- empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. I love the language there. Look at that, the, the redemption. Another good church word, right? Redemption, meaning to be set free, to be released, like the freeing of a slave. And Peter writes there that we are set free from what? From an empty way of life. And he tells us that it's the blood of Jesus that sets us free. He's talking about the cross, the death of Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. But notice the timing. What did Peter say here? When was Christ chosen? When was this set out as a plan to be, to be unfolded before us? When did God decide that He would do this? When? Before the creation of the world. Before we took our first breath. Before humanity was shaped and formed. God knew and He embraced it. Let's look at another one. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in, Ephesia, in Ephesus, look at what he writes. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Look at those next beautiful words. Adoption. Adoption. What a word. Something that's very personal to me. I could tell you a lot about this and what it means to look at a child and say, I choose you. Even with the challenges that we are sure to face, the fact that I will be 61 years old when Julian graduates from high school, it's still looking at that child and saying, I choose you. And that's the words that God says to us. He says, I choose you. And then there's that word redemption again, setting us free. And then he uses the word forgiveness, that rejection and rebellion that happened in the beginning, that continues to happen sometimes to this day. He looks at us and he says, forgiven, forgiven. And notice the timing once again. Did you catch that? When was it? Before the creation of the world. God wasn't surprised. God didn't go, wait, what are you doing? He knew what was coming. He knew the pain, the difficulty, the rejection and rebellion, and he embraced it anyway. There's one more. The Apostle Paul again, this time in a letter he wrote to the Gentile and Jewish Christians in Rome. Look at what he writes. He says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the language that is used here. Powerless, ungodly. For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so this puts an entirely different spin on it. Because here we see that this plan that God had before he spoke things into existence, before one human ever took their breath before we weren't even just passively rejecting God, while we were still his enemies, while we were still pointing our finger at him and just kind of saying, we don't love you, get away from us. We were enemies, powerless, ungodly sinners. And what happened? Christ died for us. And then there's more beautiful church words here, aren't there? We don't use these a lot, but man, I hope we never lose them. Justified justified, a legal language word that means declared innocent before the judge. Now we have right standing with God. We've been vindicated by the blood of Jesus. And you know, that would be amazing all on its own right there, wouldn't it? I mean, if that's all that Jesus did, if that was the gospel itself, could we complain? Could we walk away and go, well, just just didn't get the whole thing? No, it'd be great. We'd be perfect. But that's not it. He doesn't just say, I'm not counting your sins against you. He says, we're also reconciled. Anyone ever been on the outs with somebody relationally before? What's that feel like? Awful, isn't it? It's terrible. It's uncomfortable. You think about them all the time. You think about the relationship and if you're a self-aware person, you think, what did I do wrong? How can I fix this? But then in that moment, when that strained relationship, something happens, one person takes a step towards the other, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's hugs, there's tears, there's all these things. It's beautiful, right? I mean, it's be- It's incredible what relief when that happens. And that's what God has done here, even without us making the first move. I mean, think about that. God didn't think, say, well, you know, you take a step and then I'll take care of it. He took the first step. And he didn't just take the first step. He took all the steps. Like I said, we're still sitting over here pointing fingers at God, stewing in anger over God's not fair and God's done this and life isn't whatever. And God's just walking his way towards us. And how's this reconciliation happen? Not just because God's taking the steps. It's happening through the son. It's happening through Jesus Christ. And look at the beautiful language. No longer God's enemies. In this one, it says, now we're his friends. But then we take that step further back to what Paul said previously about adoption. That doesn't mean just friends because my children aren't just my friends. They're my children. They're heirs. They carry my name. And God says, that's exactly right. You're my children. You're my heirs. You carry my name. Isn't that that beautiful? Oh, man. And what's so amazing here is that as Paul's writing this in this Greco-Roman culture, yeah, people would reconcile relationally. Humanity would reconcile, you know, when, when needed. But the idea of reconciliation with a deity, the idea of reconciliation with a God, that didn't happen. If they wanted to reconcile with their deities, there was something they would have to do. They'd have to pay a price. They'd have to make some reparations. But for the deity to initiate... That reconciliation, completely unexpected. Something Paul's nobody around him would have been like, oh yeah, we're, no, nope, outside the box. And you notice even in that last passage, Paul's talking about time again. He says, this was all done at the right time. At the right time. Now, go read your commentaries and you'll figure out there's a lot of debate over what that actually means. But as I looked at it this week in view of the other passages we looked at, I thought, you know, we see here God who exists in eternity. Time is only possible because he's created it and he's only inserted himself in it because of us. And before time began, he knew what we would do. He knew about the rejection. He knew creating humanity this way would cause pain And he did it anyway. He did it anyway. And at the right time, doesn't say, well, now I'm going to reveal to you my plan. At the right time, he reveals his heart. In the death of Jesus Christ, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. And demonstration is probably too weak of a word here, proves would be better. God proves his love for us. Now, can we just sit in that moment for just a, you know, just sit there for just a moment in that thought. Look at that verse again on the screen. But God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, sometimes I think when we followed Jesus for a while. I've memorized this as a kid. Anybody else? Romans 5, 8. I had it. It's been there a long time. And it is so common for me to just kind of go, whoop. But this week as I was studying, I mean, this verse just kind of grabbed me. And I was taken. But God proves his own love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a couple of different ways that can be translated. Go to the next slide. Here's the Phillips New Testament translation. It says, Yet the proof of God's amazing love is this, that it was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. Just a little turn there. Wow. This is the proof. Go to the next one, the message. Paraphrase. God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. That's powerful, isn't it? That is so powerful. Anyone here think, now that's some good news I can get behind. That is the good news. Don't miss it. God saw you and me. God saw us as worth it from the beginning. And just like Amy talked about last week, our desire for spirituality, I believe we desire the gospel. I really do. I believe we have something within us. It's looking for satisfaction. It's looking for acceptance. It's looking for fulfillment. It's looking for salvation. But just like Amy talked about last week, I think sometimes we are looking for it in the wrong places. You see, we look for someone else to save us. We're looking for somebody around us to save us. We look, God help us, to our political leaders to save us. We look to our educational system to save us. We look to our relationships, our sexuality, our religious systems even to save us. And sometimes we even look to ourselves to save us. But you know what the good news is? That even knowing the difficult and painful journey, God began pursuing us a long, long, long time ago. Why would he do this? Why knowing everything that could happen, the ups and downs, why go through this? I heard somebody explain it this way. Because knowing something and experiencing something are very different things. And it's about experiencing God. God's not just content with us knowing about him. He wants us to experience him. It's like this. You know, anybody here love ice cream? I love it. Could eat my weight in it. I can't, but I I shouldn't, but I could. Anybody, you know, want to just know ice cream is good? How many of us like to experience the wonderful creaminess of ice cream? Right? Absolutely, we all do. What about your parents, your kids, your spouse? Their love Do you want to just know that they love you or do you want to experience that love? And see, and that's the beauty of this. That's the invitation that God is extending to us today. It's not saying, come know about me. He's saying, come experience me. Come experience this love that I've proven to you time and time again. And all that's needed to make that happen, it's already been done. And God's just looking at us saying, now receive this as a gift. And what a gift it is. I was reading this week. Somebody wrote, they said, the more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. And is that a beautiful thing? And then I started thinking about it and I thought, well, yeah, the love possibly, but then on our cynical age that we live in, if we see that, if somebody gives a lavish gift to somebody that doesn't deserve it, we don't go, oh, they really love them. They go, whoa, you're an idiot. And I wonder if that's maybe somehow how... People view God. I mean, Paul said the cross is foolishness. When you look at it, it makes no sense. Why would God do this? Because that's God and God is love. And he continues to prove and demonstrate himself over and over again. The costliness of this gift was Jesus's own life and God would do it all over again if needed because God says you are worth it. I can't even begin to comprehend that level of love. How about you? And yet that's what Jesus God is offering to us today. And the question is just simply, do we receive that gift? Will we receive it? And I get it. We can come up with a million reasons not to. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. You know, what are the strings attached to it? And yeah, as I said, on the outside, it looks foolish. It doesn't make sense. But when we catch a glimpse of God and when we understand what he's done and we see this invitation, the gift he is extending to you it really begins to make sense while we we read in the New Testament people like the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery and Zacchaeus and the disciples and Paul and all these individuals who were willing to give up everything to radically reorient their lives to experience this type of love. That's what we're talking about. It's a self-giving love, a life-transforming love. And once you've experienced it, your life is never the same. And so for us, we just kind of have to sit back, don't we? And I think it's a moment of self-reflection to go, am I receiving that? Or am I resisting it? And am I living in it? Because I do believe that if we've experienced the love of God, that is not something that can be damned up within ourselves. It is something that will flow through us to the world around us. And Christians should be the most joy-filled, most loving people the world has ever seen. We can't be the angriest, the harshest, the most difficult, because Jesus wasn't. And when we touch, just touch, the hymn of Jesus' love, game over. And it's here for all of us. All we do is receive it. Let's pray.